ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Are you active on social media? No. Joe says no. Yes. There are certainly good reasons to avoid it entirely uh, and a couple good reasons to be active on it. Um, I am an early adopter. I remember in my 20s setting up a MySpace group for the youth group that I was leading at the time. Um, and it used to be really fun. You could engage in dialogue and you can have debate. People would point you to interesting articles and content. Um, now it's a little bit more of a dumpster fire for conversation. But, I mean, it's still helpful for what? Pictures, cat videos, updates like that. I don't know. Um, you know, when I think about social media, one of the real challenges is that when we share in that kind of a space, uh, we usually only post, you know, highlight reels of our life rather than the full picture. And when we compare our normal life with everyone else's greatest hits, that's a recipe for failure. Years ago, there was a nonprofit formed called Half the Story. And it actually acknowledged that what we post on social media is usually only half the story. That they're trying to raise awareness and encourage people to be more honest in sharing uh, their lives that are a little bit more unfiltered, uh, not just the highlights, a little less manipulated and edited. And I bring that up because we're going to be looking at Psalm 95 this morning. Um, you notice we had a lot of Bible read, and there's a lot going on in those passages, a lot going on between those passages. But I want to look at Psalm 95, and I bring up social media because this is one of those psalms that usually gets the social media treatment. You see, we usually look at the first part of the psalm, and it's this wonderful, joyful psalm about worship. The first seven verses are this standalone, uh, amazing instruction to worship, and we usually don't keep reading the rest. Verses 8 through 11. In fact, if you follow the Anglican Daily Office of Morning Prayer, <laughs> we actually say this psalm every day. It dates all the way back to St. Benedict, that Christians would begin their day with praying this prayer, the Venite. And you have the first seven verses, and then the rest of it says, these verses may be omitted, except during in Lent. Half the story. But it is Lent. And so I thought it'd be good to look at the entire psalm and think about how we think about Psalm 95, not just the first seven verses, uh, but also with 8 through 11. The entire picture, a call to worship and a clear warning for God's people. Not just picking and choose what makes us comfortable, but listening to all of God's word uh, to us today. So if you would, uh, I'm going to be jumping back and forth between uh, Psalm 95 that's in our prayer book, it's kind of written so that we can pray it together. Um, and then Psalm 95 in the English Standard Version, there's a few little nuances uh, between them. But first I want to talk about this call to worship, because it is a beautiful, uh, almost standalone piece, verses 1 through 7. And the psalm begins, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That's the English Standard Version. In our prayer book, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. O come. The Latin for that is venite. That's where the title of this comes from. O come. 
It's an exhortation, an invitation, a summons to come and worship the Lord. There's an emphasis on loud, joyful singing. There's an emphasis on singing to the one uh, who has saved us. Um, I actually really like the English Standard Version. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation instead of the strength of our salvation. Um, I could go on a, a sidebar here, but just to be clear, Exodus 17, there was a rock. Water came from the rock. John 4, Jesus said, living water comes from me to satisfy your thirst. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that rock in the wilderness was Jesus. <laughs> and so we need to translate this, the rock of our salvation. We're praising Jesus. We're following John 4 to praise him in spirit and in truth finding our great thirst quenched by the living waters that come from Christ. Oh, come, let us sing to the one who has saved us and redeemed us. Um, if you read scholars, they will say almost all of our English translations are way too tame here. Oh, come. That's, uh, if you'd like, maybe. It just sounds kind of weak, uh, a, little bit, a little bit wimpy. Uh, Beth Tanner, who's an Old Testament scholar, Beth says that this type of song requires great effort and is expressed with as much power as a cry of alarm or war. The effect of a congregation performing this way would be deafening, not Anglican. <laughs> <laughs> this praise is loud and rowdy and would sound threatening and frightening even if you listened. It's full body, full throated praise using the full force and power of this body God has made. I actually would say it's probably more akin to calling the dogs in Sanford Stadium, but we don't go to, want to go to Romans 1 and talk about idolatry. That's another sermon. <laughs> uh, I did read one scholar, uh, John Goldengate, who's a great Brit. He, he's serving uh, in California now. And he said probably the best way we could think of this is Vamos! And if you were in Atlanta, you need night affair, you know, vamos, vamos. We, let's go. Let's praise. Let's do this. It's a huge invitation to come in and praise the Lord. It's a little louder than what we think of as proper church music. And now, don't get me wrong. Volume does not equal sincerity. Because <laughs> we can manipulate volume. We can turn it up and turn it down, Right? But this praise erupts from the innermost parts of each member of the congregation, and it's unmistakable, undeniable. And again, it's not just with their verses, uh, with their voices. You have this early call to sing unto the Lord. Later, we see the whole body worship and fall down, kneel before the Lord. The whole body is involved, and this real worship is loud and reverent as they praise the rock of our salvation. It's interesting, if you look at the rhythm of Psalm 95, you have a call to praise, and then the reason for that praise. You have that twice at the front. Praise the Lord, here's why. Praise the Lord, here is why. That call to worship them, the cause for our worship. Um, and all this comes before those awkward verses. The warning in verses 8 through 11, referencing a shameful, notorious incident in Israel's history almost immediately after God freed them from slavery in Egypt. We'll get to that. But as I read through this, I can kind of see why you would just keep this standalone. Because there's enough here to work with. We're reminded of all of these attributes of God 
his power, his majesty, that he is the creator. We're reminded that he is high and lifted up above every other God, above every other idol, above every other place we look for instead of him to find fulfillment and satisfaction. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He alone is worthy of this kind of worship and honor in contrast to all the lesser things. I mean, think about, there, we have here in mind in Psalm 95, the uh, Exodus generation. The generation that came out of slavery in Egypt. The generation who had languished for centuries. I'm guessing they began to doubt the goodness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm guessing they began to doubt the might of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob compared to the Egyptians and the power and the wealth that they saw in front of them. The same people would be taken eventually to the promised land. And you have these deities of power and war and fertility, prosperity, things we're drawn to. The psalmist says, no, no, no. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Um, and again, I, I know if I'm talking about, you know, the gods of Egypt or the gods of Canaan, making sacrifices, idols, some of that feels a little remote to us, right? We don't have literal pagan temples in the same way. Um, I actually appreciate Tim Keller's work on this. He's written a book called Counterfeit Gods. It says there's all these same things they worshipped, love and power, sex, money, all these things that they look to find fulfillment. They, they put a, a deity around it. We just pursue them in the abstract. And they call for just as much devotion. They call for just as much sacrifice. And we displace the Lord in his rightful place of worship for it. No, the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. I love that the scope of this psalm is, actually, I think it's why we've prayed it. You know, again, the church has prayed this since St. Benedict, so 1,500 years. Every day, morning prayer, praying this. What are they being reminded of? Well, one, that the work of God is so big and cosmic. He is the maker of everything. And then I am his sheep. It's huge. The expanse of this praise is unlimited and intensely personal. We're called to rejoice in God, the maker and creator of all things, and then the one who has redeemed you and me, calling us into his flock, caring for us as our good shepherd. We're reminded God is the creator. God has dominion over everything, and it just kind of paints it in wonderful poetic strokes, the depths of the earth, the heights of the hills, the sea, the dry land, you, me, anything you can think of, God made and has dominion over. Um, and they're using this kind of bookend idea, everything high and low and everything in between. God's in charge of all that. He made all that. He delights in all that. And there's this wonderful idea in the scriptures that creation itself is bearing witness to the worthiness of God. That the very creation is in some ways actively praising the creator. And if we as people fail to answer these summons to worship the Lord, well, Jesus says, the Lord can raise up new stones and even the stones will sing forth the glory of God. God is going to be praised because he's worthy of it. 
He's due the, he's, we give him the honor due his name. Um, the huge scope of this, uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, who sneaks in and does a book on the Psalms, even as a New Testament scholar, says, think about it, all the earth, all the earth. Well, you have this vision in Isaiah 6 where the seraphim, the angels, declared that the whole earth was full of God's glory. Later, the book of Revelation, Revelation 4, we have the idea that all of the earth will worship the Lord. And that's why we say in the creed, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's a starting point, that God is creator, but not just that he is creator, that creation bears witness to God, and we join in creation in praising our maker. In anticipation of when God's glory will flood everything once again, renew everything once again, and we'll worship him in spirit and in truth forever. Verse 7 is this incredible idea for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's the kind of verse you pray and say every day. So that it actually forms the imaginative foundation of your life. Who are you at a gut level, at a deep level, at a real level? You're a sheep who's been invited into a flock that's being cared for and led by the living God, our good shepherd. And so we praise him and we offer him the honor, do his name. And then we get this section in 8 through 11. The section we like to skip. <laughs> um, let's talk about this just for a moment. And again, we heard the reading from Exodus 17 um, that kind of tells us when this failure occurred. There's actually kind of another version in Numbers uh, <laughs> that's the next generation. They fail in almost the same way, partly so we just realize this is indicative of the human heart and the human condition. It's not, let's point at that generation and go, man, they really missed the boat, but we'll get it right. Multiple generations fail in the same way. Um, but think about it. If you were that group that were redeemed in the Exodus, you had seen God's power in remarkable ways. You had seen his power over creation. You had seen his power over the gods of the earth. Through these plagues, the ten plagues, God has made clear his majesty and his supremacy over creation and even the gods of the Egyptians. It's a little startling. We read Exodus 17. You do get it like, you know, it's just kind of a snippet in the bulletin. But if you read through the book of Exodus and you just look at some chapter headings, Exodus 14, they pass through the Red Sea. Exodus 15 is a massive song of praise, the song of Moses. They praise God for his might. They praise him for his redemption. It's just like the first seven verses of this psalm. And then towards the end of 15, you start to get these speed bumps in their faith, these hiccups. And they start a little, I think, just honestly. It starts with, Lord, we can't drink this water. And Moses throws a log in the water, and it makes it sweet. <laughs> okay, you now have water. Remember what happens next in Exodus 16? We need food. We're so hungry. Manna from heaven. 
Now, just put this in your mind. <laughs> you are the generation who saw the plagues, freed from Egypt, walk through the dry land with the Red Sea all around you, drank the sweet water, ate the manna. Exodus 17. Have you brought us out here to kill us? Are you in our midst, Lord? Man, what have you done for me lately? They had seen the glory of God, but when they were led out into the wilderness, they fall. It's called the place of provocation, the place of contending with the Lord. Um, by the way, if you remember the very first Sunday of Lent, um, there is one who is tempted. Adam's tempted, fails. David's tempted, fails. Jesus is tempted, wins. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, is tempted, wins. Here, Israel goes out into the wilderness, is tempted, falls. Falls terribly. Tragic circumstances. Because of their failure, this is the generation that wanders in the wilderness. Later in the book of Numbers, there's a parallel account. It's the next generation. And they have the same thing, basically. Where's the water? And in that story, they're questioning their leaders. They're ready to stone Moses. And in Numbers... The Lord tells Moses, speak to the, this rock, a different rock, another rock, and water will come out. And you remember what Moses does? He doesn't talk. He gets mad, and he strikes the rock. And actually, that's why Moses is barred from the promised land. It's not a you, the people, are bad, and the leaders are good kind of a thing. It's we're all caught up in this complicity of sin and doubt. It's this reminder, I think, just by, by sticking all these verses together, how quickly we can bounce from worship to unfaithfulness, from trusting to doubting, how we can have these compartments that just don't seem to, to go together, despite all that we've seen God do and all that God has done for us. I think the real benefit of reading this entire psalm is to actually hear the warning and the context for our worship that Real worship and holy living go hand in hand. Derek Kidner says that this austere conclusion balances the exuberant opening with the same realism as that of the prophets with their call to match our fine gestures with fine deeds. If you read the book of Amos or Isaiah 1, it talks about worshiping with the rightness of our hearts. That words without commitment are an abomination to God. And this psalm tells us that even in the midst of a call to worship, there's this reminder that our worship is more than our words or how we feel in the service. It's, it's a commitment of all of our aspects of our lives. And so we hear verse 8, today, if you will hear his voice, this urgent, evergreen timestamp, today, anytime the Lord speaks, don't harden your hearts or respond with disobedience. Don't be like this generation. Learn from them. Learn from their mistake. Learn from their example. See how you resonate with them 
and are prone to the same pitfalls. Man, this story is about the human heart. How prone we are to forget, to complain, to grumble instead of praise. And it's interesting, even when the whole moment calls for praise by God's people, these moments of failure lurk in the background. They lurk there as a, as a warning about not listening to God. It's very interesting. I, actually, it was, if you talk about what, was, what happened, I mentioned that first they say this water is not good to drink, and they sweeten the water. Then we need food. Manna comes. God doesn't seem very angry there. They're expressing an honest need. But here it says that they test God. They put him to the test. And I think what's happening here is despite all they had seen, they doubt his goodness. And they look to manipulate and coerce the Lord rather than receive what he's given them in due time and due season. They're not pleased with the rescue. The salvation is not going according to plan. Do you remember the first Star Wars movie? The one in the late 70s? Like the first, not the first in terms of the prequel, but the first. Princess Leia has been captured. And she sends out a cry for help and deliverance. Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Somehow, incredibly, Obi-Wan makes his way to the Death Star. And she's in a cell. And somehow Luke and Han Solo and all their companions, they, they make their way against all odds. They free her from the cell where she was likely awaiting a certain death. Um, and I actually love the way they write her character because instead of being this just like two-dimensional damsel in distress, she is quick-witted and courageous. But no sooner had they rescued her than they're just in trouble all over again. You remember this if you've seen uh, Star Wars. And you remember what she said? <laughs> uh, this is some rescue. You came in here, didn't you have a plan for getting out? I imagine that's a little bit of the attitude and spirit of what happened in Exodus 17. This is some rescue. Didn't you have a plan? You took us out of Egypt to go where? Lord, what are you up to? And again, we could give them a hard time, <laughs> except we know how true this pattern is in our own lives. Lord, you have made everything. Lord, you have redeemed me. Lord, you have forgiven me. I don't like this. Hmm, this is some rescue. You came in here, didn't you have a plan for getting us out? Didn't you have a plan for what this Christian life would look like? And again, the Israelites hadn't just been let out of a, a cell right away. I mean, Leah, this just, she's trying to figure out who people are. What's your name? What, what is, she's disoriented. No, the Israelites, they had seen incident after incident of God's faithfulness his power, his ability to deliver them. I mean, for goodness sake, they already needed water and it got provided. They needed food, it got provided. If you need water again, trust in the Lord. No, they put him to the test. They asked, I think, the scariest question that a congregation can ask. Lord, are you even here with us? Are you in our midst? Or have you abandoned us? 
Christopher Wright says, here it is Israel putting God to the test. The story clearly implies that this was something wrong, inappropriate for them to do, which means it's not just an innocent desire seeking to prove God's faithfulness and experience. Rather, it was seeking a way in which God can be coerced to act or show himself. It's trying to force God's hand to make him do what we want him to do instead of being acknowledging he's the Lord and he does what he pleases and he does what is good ultimately. You know, it's interesting um, and we'll wrap up in just a moment. Uh, The book of Hebrews. Hebrews grabs Psalm 110 and this awkward section of Psalm 95 and it's almost a sermon on those passages. Um, You've probably heard of the warning passages of Hebrews. The warning is don't be like this generation. They actually quote here verses 8 through 11 over and over again. We like to skip over those verses. That's what Hebrews grabbed. That here's the pay dirt. Here's what we can learn from. Because it will guide us and give us clear truth and a clear warning. Hebrews 3 and 4 warns us not to be like this generation. Then do you know how it ends? Fascinating to me, just to see kind of how does the Bible understand this passage and apply it. Hebrews says, in light of all of this that we're saying, in light of the warning to forget the Lord and his goodness and put him to the test. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, rather than allow our doubts to fester and spread, we're called to bring them to the Lord. The Lord doesn't mind honest questions. The Lord in his kindness knows that we oscillate between faith and unfaithfulness, but there is a difference between asking questions, expressing honest doubts, and putting God to the test. There's a difference between doubts and putting God in the legal dock to bring charges against him. Because that's what they do. So they bring charges against God. They question his goodness. They put the Lord on trial. Now, the Lord sympathizes with our weaknesses, our temptations, but rather than allow them to drive a wedge between us and our Creator, Hebrew says this is an invitation to draw closer, an invitation to intimacy and maturity with the Lord. Again, we're called to focus on the full picture of Psalm 95, hearty worship and clear warning rather than just pretend that the edited highlight of the first section is sufficient, or even airbrushing and editing our own lives to make them you know, fit into the cliches and slogans that we so desperately want to be true. Now, we worship in light of our doubts, in light of our failures, not focusing on them or ignoring them, but delighting in the mercy and grace of God. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Deacon's going to come on. I invite you to stand and just do notice how the creed draws on Psalm 95.
It's wonderful.